Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. Amen. Can y'all thank the worship team? And for the heirs and the stewards for serving us, so thank y'all so much. I'm super excited about this morning, as uh, most of y'all know, uh, Steve Shaver. But uh, Steve, if you want to come on up, Steve is here, and he's, he's agreed to help with the teaching this morning, and he's been a part of, uh, I know that Joe mentioned a few weeks ago that as we set out on, on this, this fall series on the teaching of John, that we wanted it to be collaborative. We wanted it to be not just one person, but we wanted it to truly be a team. And so Steve and myself and Joe and Sean sat down together and kind of prayed through that and talked through. And so um, Steve has been a huge part of the teaching this fall. Um, it, and as we've walked through John, not just for being here this morning teaching, but as we've been collaborating through the week. And it's been really sweet as we've been able to send each other um, what we're teaching on, and the other person is praying for you and, 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 and reading through that. And so it's been really good. So I'm excited for Steve to be here this morning. And I'll tell you that uh, Steve has, is significant for me and in, in, in my life right now. He's in a lot of ways a mentor for me and disciples me, but uh, my relationship with Steve goes back to when Shay and I were first married and we first showed up in church, not sure what we were looking for, what we needed, but knowing that um, we should be in church. And so we started serving under Steve's ministry through uh, Austin Christian Fellowship and with student ministry and missions. And so uh, Steve is a huge part of why I'm in ministry today, and God used him to encourage me for me to for me to learn to accept myself for who I am and who He created to, it, it to be, and not try to be something else. So I'm thankful for Steve being here this morning teaching. So Steve, if you don't mind, I would love to pray for you, you. Uh, before you jump in. So Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for Steve Shaver, selfishly, for the friend that he's been in my life, for the encouragement that he's been, uh, for the mentor that he's been to me. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that that I've been sharpened by him, as your word says. And I thank you for the scripture that you've put on him and his heart this morning. I thank you that he has come and given of his time and effort and energy to, to, to pour that out to us and to this body today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jake. Um, and let me just say, and I know I've told you guys before, but, uh, when I was up, um, Really proud of Jake, but uh, you guys are in good hands uh, as a church. Um, God's Spirit's moving here, and Jake is uh, committed to humbling himself before God and being used. So, as always, it's a gift to be with you this morning. I'm going to jump right into the text. We're in uh, the third chapter of John, and I'm going to be starting in verse 22. If you want to follow along in your Bible, or it will be on the screen as well. And Scripture says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them, and they baptized. John also was in Anon, near Salim, uh, because there was plenty of water there, and people were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a few 
uh, and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan, he's talking about Jesus, is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I recently stumbled across an article online um, put out by the LA Times. And this article said that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department had seen an increase, an uptick, if you will, in extreme wilderness rescues in uh, the year 2017. And what it seems that, and, and I love the wilderness. If you know anything about me, I love the mountains. I love hiking. I love climbing. I love all those different things. And I love a good story about, you know, someone who's out in the wilderness and they, they lose their way or they get lost or um, vehicle breaks down or something and they're left to spend time in the wilderness and they survive and it's a great story of triumph and um, they're rescued. And so I was... Um, drawn to this story, and so I began to read, and it says there's a huge uptick in 2017, 40% over the previous five years in wild, extreme wilderness rescues. But it's interesting, um, we find out when you look a little closer, um, team leaders, rescue team leaders say the single largest factor for that increase is people posting videos of extreme activities online. Then without any thought about it or difficulty, others try to recreate their own 15-second version of glory. So the upswing in these wilderness rescues is because people are trying to get noticed online, right? People are out there posting videos on the side of cliffs. They're posting videos jumping off of waterfalls. They're posting videos down in caves because they want 15 seconds of relevance, Right? But what we're finding, as one in this story did, uh, a man named Wilson Garin and his children, um, Olivia and Brandon, 11 and 12, they were hiking to Hermit Falls in the Los Angeles National Forest, and one of the most popular waterfalls in the Los Angeles areas. And what they stumbled upon was two men up on top of a cliff over the waterfall and the pool below discussing how they were going to post this online and who would get more likes. The first man jumped and proceeded to dislocate his shoulder. But not being outdone, the second man jumped ahead anyway and broke both of his legs. Now, I love the wilderness, I love extreme, but it seems like our society is in this place of trying to gain relevance, of trying to be noticed. And not just in the wilderness, but in daily lives. We want to walk into a room and be noticed. We want people to, to know who we are. We post every part of our lives on social media to see who will get the most likes and the most comments. And I think John, although social media did not exist in this time, 
gives us a great reminder of who we are and the place that we have. But things weren't any different then. People were still pushing for relevance. People were still pushing to be noticed. People were still pushing for their 15 seconds of fame. So just to give you a little background on um, the story and where we are in the text, Jesus and his disciples had just finished this conversation with Nicodemus. I think one of the guys uh, spoke and taught about that earlier in the series, and it's this beautiful conversation, hard conversation, challenging conversation, but Jesus basically shares the gospel with Nicodemus where he shares John 3.16, for God's soul of the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the two-part ways, and Jesus and his disciples go to the countryside where it says they're spending time together and they're baptizing. At the same time, John and his followers are on the other side of the Jordan, this place called Salim, which really truly means much water, and they're baptizing as well. And Scripture tells us in the text that a dispute arose. Now, we love a good fight. We love a good argument. So we're curious about what's going on, and theologians don't really know. There's not a whole lot of text around this, but it says that this dispute arose between some of John's followers and a Jew. One can uh, surmise that it might be about this Jew looking at the baptisms taking place and being a religious expert of the day, as as you would call him. Um, He probably comments on the fact that John's probably not doing it right or something of that nature. Whatever, what we do know is that John's disciples, his followers, walk away with this idea and understanding that Jesus is on the other side of the river, and he's baptizing as well. And so they run to Jesus, and they tell him, Jesus, the one you talked about, the one that you've been promoting, the one that you've been discussing and and everything, he said, Jesus is on the other side, and he's he's, uh, baptizing as well. And many people are flocking to him. It's, it's like these guys running to John and saying, John, Jesus is now on Instagram, and he's got more likes than you. We know that's not the case, but that's what it is. And, and society has this tendency to stir things up and to kind of get us to begin thinking, okay, somebody else has got more relevance than me. This is where the story gets interesting. I really want you to see um, the tone and feel what's going on here because I think it really calls for self-reflection for all of us. Put yourself in John's shoes for just a minute. He's got this growing ministry. A lot of people are following him. He's been preaching this message, repent, for God's kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is coming. He has followers everywhere. There's a ton of momentum in his ministry. He's baptizing many people. His disciples run to him and say, you know what, John? Everybody's going to Jesus now. They're across the He's baptizing a ton of people. We spend our lives struggling for relevance in this world, and we find ourselves frustrated a lot of times that other people are getting the accolades that we think we deserve. They're getting the tension that we think we deserve. As a society, we stir this up. We're about to address John's response, but I think it's critical that we wrestle with that question today, and that's where I want to start with getting you to think about this. When you wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, when we wake up in the morning, is it my relevance that I'm pursuing, 
Or am I attempting to be about something bigger than myself? So there's a beautiful line at the end of this passage that all of us have heard on a regular basis. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. We've all heard that. It's powerful. It's strong. I could just take that and go throughout Scripture and find all kinds of verses to support that. But what's interesting about this passage is that John very simply gives us a message. And as any good pastor would, it's got three points and a great illustration right in the middle of this text. You see, John has the opportunity to respond out of a selfish or self-centered heart. After all, didn't he want his ministry to succeed? Didn't he want his ministry to grow? But this was not John's response at all. Instead, John gives this beautiful nod to God's sovereignty. He says, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. So he looks at this group of followers that he's been trying to bring along and point to Jesus, and they're trying to stir up this thing and say, hey, Jesus is getting more attention than you are. Don't you want your ministry to grow? And John says, you know what? Jesus is getting more followers than me. He is baptizing more. There are more running to him. But don't you understand that nothing can be given to anyone that doesn't come from heaven? He gives this beautiful nod to God's sovereignty. And this is, this is my first point. John sets the record straight. In doing so, he brings some needed perspective to all of us. If anyone is gaining anything here, likes, dislikes, follows, whatever, it's because God gave it to them. God is in control. And this is the first point of John's little sermon in this passage. God is sovereign. God is in control. You know, quite often when life gets difficult, when it gets complicated, when things seem chaotic, out of control, when we're struggling for relevance and for significance in our lives, which often pushes us um, to trying to find it from the world, typically this all happens because we have forgotten who God is. We've lost track and the significance of God's glory and his sovereignty and the fact that he's in control. Isaiah 46, 10 says this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm 115, 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then finally, in Daniel, I love this passage It says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. And light dwells with him. One of my favorite authors, uh, A.W. Tozer, says that our opinion of God will define how we live our life. So the question then begs this morning, what is your opinion of God? How do you value God? Are you living your life in light of the reality that God is in control? Do you wake up each morning with the understanding that something bigger than you is at play here? 
John is very quick to reset his followers and disciples and point them back to the fact that God is in control. He points them back to God's sovereignty. So if God is in control, then what does that say about us? And this is the second point in John's mini sermonette, and I hate to break it to you this morning, but, but here's the reality. You are not the Messiah. I know that catches some of you off guard. Jake's not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Um, we are not the Messiah. It's interesting. I stumbled across um, this term, and, and I think I'd heard it, but never really thought about it, never researched it, but there's a thing in society called the Messiah complex, Right? And it's this idea that we can be the savior of the world. And it, it extends from something as extreme as what happened in Waco several years ago with David Koresh, an individual actually thinking he was the Messiah to save the world, all the way down to the intricacies of our own hearts and thinking that we can save ourselves and being self-reliant and being way too dependent on our, ourselves and not letting go of that to let God be who he is and who he wants to be for us. So it's this Messiah complex. I think we all probably at some level struggle with being self-reliant, feeling like we can save ourselves. In the first chapter of John, uh, there's a group of priests and Levites that approach John, and this is in the season when he's out in the wilderness. You know, he's dressed in his camel hair, and he's eating milk and honey and, and all those good things. And this group of priests approach John, and they ask him, who are you? And he answers simply, he doesn't say, I'm John. He says, I'm not the Messiah. So from the beginning of his ministry to pave the way for Jesus, John was crystal clear about who he was and about who he was not. But it's interesting because each of the gospel accounts give us this reference made to John's truth and declaration. In the book of Matthew, John states to Jesus, I ought to be the one baptizing you. In Mark, John says, I am not the light, but I came to testify of the light. And then Luke says of John, John was destined before birth to be the prophet to his younger cousin, Jesus. So when his followers began to put John in the same category as Jesus and even to compare their ministries, John was very quick, uh, quick um, to point them in a different direction. Now, I know there are few, if any, um, in this room that would declare themselves a Messiah. I hope that's not the case, right? Uh, I'm certainly not him. Um, but I got to believe that we often live our lives as if we are our own Savior, right? We want to be self-reliant. We want to be self-dependent. We want to take care of things on our own. Um, if not the Messiah or Savior of the world, don't we often live um, that way? We tend to be self-reliant, but at the heart of following Christ is declaring our dependence on Christ, declaring that we need a Savior. The whole idea of being a Christian is giving up. It's surrender. It's admitting that there's someone who can save us and that we need a Savior. There are those seasons, though, and I, I think if we're all being honest, we're all there. But for me personally, I know there's those seasons when I challenge 
God, I, I challenge Jesus and I push back and I want to believe that my way is just a little bit better. The passage that I am often pushed back to is in Job. And uh, if you've ever done some, some time in Job, uh, man, it gets your attention. But um, whenever I'm not being very humble, whenever I'm being way too self-reliant, whenever I'm thinking my way might be a little bit better than God's, um, I can often go to this passage, and I'll just read a little bit of it, but the entire chapter of, 38, uh, of Job 38 is very telling and convicting to us. And this is God talking to Job after Job's had this really horrible season of life where he's lost everything that he has, and he's gotten sick, and nothing is, is going well um, in his eyes. And he pushes back on God a little bit, and then God just responds as only God can. He says, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. And then he begins to ask Job a series of questions. Job, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched time across it? What supports its foundation? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put bars and doors in its place, when I declared you may come this far but no further, your proud waves stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning, Job, or assigned the dawn its place? Have you ever traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so you can lead it back to its borders? Whenever I need to be put in my place, God draws me to this passage and reminds me that he's God and I am not. But equally as important, I think, is this idea that I, Steve Shaver, was not selected by God to die for the sins of the world, right? That's not me. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Savior of mankind. Tim Keller writes this, if we think we can save ourselves, we reject the truth as much as if we think we do not need to be saved at all. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. And then John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And theologian Philip McClarty says this, our ability to know Christ, the true Christ, begins with our confession that we are not the Christ. As long as we rely on our own strength and wisdom and resources, we hold 
we hold Christ at a distance. So as John's disciples try to stir things up, John reminds them that he, that they are not the Messiah, that that title belongs to Jesus alone. So if we have a good, healthy, biblical opinion of who God is, of his sovereignty, of the reality that he is in control of all things, if we understand who we are in light of that, if we understand that we are not the Messiah, that we are not our own Savior, that on the contrary, we need desperately a Savior, then where does that take us? Well, John would say it takes us to this place of beautiful, perfect joy. As a matter of fact, he says, this completes my joy. John here goes to this illustration, this beautiful, and throughout Scripture, there's a a beautiful um, metaphor, if you will, used uh, of, of the wedding, of the bride and the groom. And John goes to this place, and he says, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. And this cultural custom and history of of the wedding, um, the groom actually had a very relevant position um, before the, I mean the groomsman, before the groom was to arrive, he would take care of everything. He'd set up the entire wedding. He'd take care of the bride. And he would look for the groom's coming and announce that. So John gives us this beautiful picture and tells us exactly what his role is and what his purpose is and how he understands the relevance of that. He says, you know what? The groom is coming. The bride is the church. I am not the groom, but I'm here to testify to the groom's coming. And I'm here to get things ready, and I'm here to prepare the way. And I rejoice at the groom's coming. I rejoice at his voice because I know what it means. For it means that when he's here, then God's kingdom is coming to fruition. And my salvation and my eternity is secure. John understands what's at play here and what's at stake. And so he quickly looks at his followers. He said, I am not the guy. I'm the guy to let you know about the guy. And when he comes, all things will be as they are to be. And in that I rejoice. And not only do I rejoice, in that my joy is full and it's complete. I mean, think about that idea, right? We can all think about this time when we were joyful, truly joyful. We know the difference between happiness and joyful. Happiness is about circumstance. Joy is about understanding who we are and who God is in light of our circumstances, good or bad, high or low. Think about that time when you were joyful. Maybe it's a great, full memory that you long to be back there, you long for it to happen again. And then think on top of that of your joy being not just full but complete. John talks about his joy being complete because Jesus has come. And so this is the last point of John's sermon. Our joy is most full when God is all. Now I want you to follow me here 
Um, there's a, a catechism written by a bunch of European theologians a long time ago called the Westminster Catechism. And they studied Scripture, and they wanted to come up with some tenets, and one of the questions that they asked, according to Scripture, was, what is man's chief end? What is man's greatest purpose on this earth? And the answer to that that they came up with, the true chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, follow me here for just a second because this is really cool. Our end, if our end is God's glory, and God is most glorified in His Son, Jesus, then when we trust Jesus, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we submit to Jesus and His authority and His lordship in our lives, then God is glorified. And in Christ, we have everything, and that equals our joy complete. I want to read some of this passage to you. Because if, if we are to be about God's glory and our greatest joy is found in his glory, he's most glorified in Jesus, then I want you to know what we have in Christ. And this is Ephesians 1. And Paul's encouraging the church at Ephesus, and he says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he has lavishly bestowed on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. So if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and he is most glorified in his son Jesus, then when we submit to Jesus as John has, then our joy is complete. And all those things I just read to you come to fruition in our lives. Those are true about us in Christ. So what then is our response? How then do we respond to God? Well, two simple things I think, and I would hope John would agree, because this is how he exemplified responding to Jesus and who Jesus was. One, humble yourself. Man, this is tough. This is tough for us. This is countercultural. Um, we wake up uh, from birth as individuals who are self-promoting. Um, we're proud. Uh, we push back against humility. A lot of times in society, humility is seen, seen as a weakness, um, but it's not. And I love that as a church you have chosen to make it one of your core values but it's hard, humanly speaking, to come about. But if we truly see who God is and who we are in light of that, then humility um, is, is a natural outcome and a natural response. Proverbs 22, 4 says, humility is the fear of the Lord. And when I say fear, I mean this, this healthy respect and understanding of God's sovereignty and his control, right? Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. 
when we humble ourselves, the Psalms and the Proverbs are chock full of references to God raising up the humble and tearing down the proud. And so our first step is humility. Andrew Murray says the first step to holiness is humility. It's understanding who we are and our posture in light of who God is. A.W. Tozer says only the humble are sane, for they are the only ones who are clearly aware of their own size and their limitations. We've got to come to this place where we humble ourselves. We wake up every morning and we say, God, I yield to you. I yield to your authority. I yield to your wisdom. I yield to your sovereignty in my life. And on top of that, I am humbled by your love for me. I'm humbled that you would love me so much that you would send Jesus to die on a cross for me. So I want to live my life in humility before you. And then finally, find joy in the cross. I want to go back to that interesting article from Wilderness Rescues in the beginning. Our fight in this society is to be seen, right? It's to be relevant. It's to be known. Can I just encourage you today, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever, whether it's you're, you're wanting some popularity or, or the other end of, of just trying to be significant, can I just encourage you that God sees you, God knows you, and in the cross, um, you are made unique, and you are valued, and you are loved. So we recently went to a wedding. It was about a month ago. I love weddings. I gotta, I'm, a, I'm a sap at weddings for a lot of reasons. They're fun. I love the celebration. But for my wife and I, we always come away with these great conversations because after 30-plus years of marriage, um, to be reminded about why um, we loved each other in the first place and why we made that commitment, that um, covenant to each other in the first place is always refreshing. And, um, uh, but this was uh, a beautiful wedding. It's this historic um, house in, in South Dallas. And it was outside. It was a beautiful evening, um, kind of like the weather is now, a little bit cool. Um, and uh, there were a ton of people there, and um, the music was beautiful, and, and there were flowers everywhere, and it just looked amazing. Um, it was a big wedding, so there were a, a bunch of attendants. And, um, but but I, my, what I remember most, what was so unique in that um, beautiful ceremony um, was when things got quiet and the groom came out and he stood to wait for the bride. And the bride came around the corner and um, the groom just about lost it. I mean, he was just welling up with tears in his eyes and his chin was quivering like crazy and um, he had this glow about him that um, just this joy. This is my bride. And it was a beautiful ceremony and they made this beautiful covenant together in front of God and 
Um, I was just moved by the entire ceremony, and I remember walking away just being moved about how God sees me that way. When you think about this metaphor of Christ and the church, we have to understand as a people that, that Christ sees us and he loves us and God's love for us was so deep that he sent Jesus to die for us, to redeem us. And I was moved by God's love for me and, and reminded about how he sees me that way and, and so much more. but also was moved by the reality that nothing took away from that moment. Yeah. In that moment, it seems like the beautiful house, the flowers, and especially the attendants vanished behind that moment of bride and groom coming together and covenant made and love set as a foundation. Nothing, nothing stole from that moment. That was about the bride and the groom. And I think this is what John is trying to tell us. God's kingdom is coming. Jesus is the fruition of that kingdom. He says, my role is to disappear and to allow Jesus to be everything. And that's why he closes with this huge, paramount, foundational to our faith statement that he must increase and I must decrease. Our lives must become about nothing in order that he, Jesus, may become all. I'll close with this. The deepest longing of the human heart and the deepest meaning of heaven and earth are summed up in this, the glory of God. Our greatest joy is known when our greatest desire is to see God glorified and to allow ourselves to fade into the brilliance of that glory. We must become nothing so he can be all. And if you want to experience joy, fullness of joy, complete joy, then become nothing so that God can be all in your life. He must increase, we must decrease. Let me pray. You guys stand with me. Father God, thank you for John's reminder that you are God and we are not. But Father, we declare and embrace the reality that you desire joy for us. God, part of why we exist today is so that we can enjoy you so that we can know true joy. 
But Father, help us to remember that joy is not found in our own relevance. It's not found in popularity. It's not found in wealth or success or power or control. God, that joy, that complete joy that John talks about is only found in letting go and allowing you to become all and fading into the brilliance of your glory, Father, so that you can be all in this world. Father, we exist to declare your glory. We exist, Father, to, to reflect your glory. We exist to point others to your glory. May that be our heart, and may we know the joy that is found in becoming nothing, Father, so you can be all. May that be our heart's cry this morning as we walk out of this place, as we try to apply these truths, Father, to our lives. May we humble ourselves and find joy in the cross and in your glory. We love you. We praise you. We pray for your glory in this place and in this world. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys have a great weekend. We thank you for listening today and pray that you are blessed by this message. We invite you to join with us on Sundays or connect with us at our website, vessel.church.